My name is Jonathan. I'm the pastor of youth and young adults here, if you don't know that already. And this morning, we are talking all about story. So I don't know when you hear that scripture, uh, one of the first words that comes to my mind is daunting. <laughs> it feels like a pretty high calling that Paul is, is addressing here. Uh, and, and I want to help us with that. Maybe you don't feel it's daunting, but to help me at least with that, I want us to talk about story and the way story shapes our life. And to think of our life as story and our following of Jesus as living into a new story, a greater story, the story of God. We live in a world full of stories. And I need to admit, like right off the bat, uh, hearing Hannah mention that Disney was so formative for her, uh, to, to expose myself a little bit, like, I didn't go to Disney World at all growing up. The first time was this last spring with Brittany and her family. And, like, I didn't, I watched some Disney movies, but we were watching uh, The Beauty and the Beast, like, a live theater performance of it. And I'm sitting there, and, like, I, there's so many parts of that story. I had no clue were in there. And I'm just like, but they can talk? And Gaston, who is, like, I, like, I knew nothing. Like, like. And I just realized, like, I thought I would have known. It's a pretty common story. And I keep asking questions. And then this kid, who's probably 11, turns around with, like, this look of disdain of just, like, how do you not know this? Like, this is, <laughs> this is like, human canon. We should just all know this story. So those are not stories that have formed me, unfortunately. But we, we all have stories that have formed us. Uh, and this is not just through uh, art and media, although that's a big place for it, but when we go to work, spending time with our families, the hobbies we have, everything in our life gets inputted and we create a story or a narrative out of it. And I want us to use that framework to look at discipleship and how we follow Jesus. Because if we're honest, our story that we have, if it's constantly changing, it's being constantly confronted with different things. So every day we go through, we make choices of how we want to address the story that we're telling ourselves about the world. So two quick examples of this, uh, both have to do with language, um, where I I you can be confronted um, realizing people think differently than you. One was when I was at YWAM, this is a very simple example. Uh, there's people from all over the world that are there, but there's also Americans there, okay? I just have to say it that way. Uh, because of this, I was talking, I was telling a story about uh, 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 a story of my brother's, cra not crashing, but blowing the engine of my parents' car. Uh, so I was telling these, my friends at YWAM this story, and I said the car was a Mazda. And then I keep going through the story. And then they're just like giggling, like it's so funny to them. And they're like, Mazda, Mazda. And they kept saying it back. I'm like, yeah, that's what it is. Like, do you not know the car brand? Do you need help with that? And they're like, it's Mazda. And this, like, condescending American exceptionalism, look at us. Like, it was just, and so, I mean, I'm sure it happened when I mentioned pasta. And it was just a constant thing where they would let me know. But in that moment, it's a small thing. But it was like, well, that's just how I understand. I didn't even think that there was another way you'd pronounce that. And I don't even think I'm that Canadian. I think I'd be pretty good at, you know, us, us West Coast, we're basically American in how we talk, I would say. But anyways. <laughs> That was one. But an even worse thing, and I couldn't think of an example, although I'm sure I have in my own life, is like, have you ever known not how to pronounce a word? Uh, or even worse, you say a word in front of people, and all of a sudden, 
you get corrected, or you get a face that looks at you. You might be talking. This is a classic one. So anyways, in the preface, it says something like this, and you keep going, and they, and they look at you. They're like, preface, it's preface. You're not friends with that person anymore. You can't come back from that. It's over. You, but in that moment, you were doing what you thought was, you know, all well and good, and you were exposed, and your story in this little way was confronted, and sometimes that doesn't feel great. But what I want to encourage us is that this has a huge impact on how we journey and grow through life. So it happens in these little ways, but it happens in a lot bigger ways as well. As we continually grow, our thoughts, our feelings, our beliefs will continually change, or we will continually resist the change that's coming, and that's the tension that we live in. Um, but I, what I want us to do to start here is just take two minutes with like two or three people around you and exercise your brain of when's the time you have changed your mind on something, okay? So it could be small, like I used to hate mustard, I love mustard now, that is, that's a big change in my life. Uh, something like that, or it could be a way you've changed theologically, whatever it might be. Talk amongst the, a few people around you and share how you've changed your mind, okay? And then we'll come back. It doesn't only have to be food related. I heard tomatoes right away, but it can be. Okay, like 30 more seconds, and then we'll come back. Okay, that chatter in and of itself proves that we change our minds, okay? And it's a simple thing, um, but what I want to encourage us in that is that life is constant change, and I know that is not encouraging to many of us, but that, that is what, what life is. It, it is a story that we are writing, that we're taking things in, and we're choosing, nope, I don't want to believe that, or I have to believe this, and we create a narrative about ourselves. Some of us change more than others. Some of us resist change at all costs, and, and, and for many of us, it depends on the situation, but we need to be open to change in some way. And this is how we can think about Paul's encouragement, his daunting encouragement maybe, to continuously be transformed through the renewal of your mind. I want to encapsulate that idea with this idea of living into a new story, as I said. This is going to help us because there is transformative power in a good story. We each have our own story that as we follow Jesus, we then place into the story of God, the larger story, the story of redemption for the world uh, that we read all throughout scripture. Uh, 
that our life becomes a part of that story. When we say, yes, I want to follow you. And when we do that, that is where transformation happens. You bring your life, you bring everything you've gone through, you bring it into this story of God that people for thousands of years have been a part of, and you start to see transformation as you change the way you think, the way you act, all of those things. It happens within that story. But in order to be transformed and to see how our life and our story gets shaped by God's, we need to know our own story. And so I want us to think about that question a little bit. Do you know your own story? Do you know what makes you, you? And it's kind of an odd question, uh, but I think if we sit back and reflect, uh, and if we're honest, uh, we do not really know ourselves as much as we like to think or believe we do. We like to think we're self-aware and we, and we can describe who we are and what makes us tick, but for many of us, we are likely only scratching the surface. Uh, Peter Skitzera, uh, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which if you haven't read, is such an, um, an incredible book on spiritual formation, he emphasizes uh, this kind of point, that there's a direct connection between our spiritual maturity and formation and our emotional maturity. And through his own life experience and decades of pastoring, he concludes that it is impossible to spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Early in his book, he assesses that most discipleship models, ways we do discipleship in the church, address to, uh, fail to address the whole life of the disciple. He says it this way, the spirituality of most discipleship models often only adds an additional protective layer against people growing up emotionally. When people have authentic spiritual experiences, such as worship, prayer, Bible studies, fellowship, they mistakenly believe they are doing fine, even if their relational life is fractured and their interior world, their thoughts and feelings are disordered. It's a sobering quote. He then uses the analogy of an iceberg, which I have a picture that'll come up uh, there, and naming that much like an iceberg, we are made up of deep layers that exist well beneath our day-to-day -day awareness. So 10% of an iceberg is visible, but the other 90% is unseen, and with this analogy, we could say it's unconscious to us. The 10% represents the way we conduct ourselves and the changes we make that others can see, we become nicer people, more respectful, we try to stop doing things we see as bad, we might attend church like this and attend regularly, we clean up our lives by addressing bad behaviors and bad habits as much as we can, but the roots of who we are continue unchanged and unmoved. And the quote I have up there uh, from the psychologist Carl Jung, as he famously said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. So that's the, that's the humbleness of self-awareness. As we become self-aware, humility is a part of it as we realize, oh, I don't know myself as much as I thought I did. So we each have our own story full of all of these experiences we've gone through, other stories we've heard that our parents have told us, that church has told us, that work, the world has told us, and we're gathering all this and giving ourselves a story of our own life as a way of seeing the world and our purpose in it. This is how we get through our day-to-day -day life. And, and what I want us to acknowledge is that 
we just don't know that whole story. So part of spiritual formation, part of that process of growing is getting to know who you are, what has made you who you are up to this point. Uh, on a deep level, becoming aware of that uh, is a challenge. In order, in order for us to continually grow in our faith, as we become more and more aware of our story, uh, we, we can understand the power of story in shaping our lives. And so I have another quote. I'm going to read the first half, and then the second half will be on the screen. This is from Ian Morgan Cron, who uh, is an Enneagram enthusiast. And I'm going to stop saying that now because I can go on and on about the Enneagram. You can talk to me after. But he's also an author, an Episcopalian priest, and a therapist. And this is how he describes the power of story in our, in our lives. He says... Human beings are incurable storytellers. We tell hard luck stories, tall stories, short stories, sob stories, rags to riches stories, one-sided stories, and the occasional long story short. What accounts for the power and everywhereness of stories? Our very sur survival depends on them. From the time we enter this world, we begin crafting a story that helps us make sense and give meaning to the painful things that happen to us. He says, don't underestimate little kids. They're wicked smart. I think he, I don't know if he's from Boston. I, don't, I can't do a Boston accent, but they're wicked smart. There we go. <laughs> they don't just pick up messages from their family members and peers about who they are and what the world expects of them. They suck them up like shop vacs. Over time, they naturally create an elaborate story about their identity and value based on these experiences and unconscious messages. A narrative that grooves itself deeply into their hearts or deeply into our hearts as we were raised. This is the story that helped us as children know who we needed to be and what we needed to do to feel safe in the world. And according to many therapists, we actually build our lives around this self-told story. It forms our identity and personality. So if this is true about how we go about our life and how we are formed, then this becomes central to what it means for us to grow together in our allegiance to Jesus. Discipleship takes all of us, the whole of us, in order for transformation to happen. To follow Jesus is to hear the story of God, one that brings redemption and restoration to a broken world and to our broken selves, and immerse ourselves in that story. That is the story we are living into. And this is what Paul is emphasizing to the followers of Jesus in Rome, as we read uh, from Romans 12. To be transformed by the renewing of our mind is to allow the Spirit of God to reshape the narrative we have given ourselves about who we are and what it means to be human. So let's take a quick look at some of the context that Paul was saying these words uh, and see how that can help us understand a little bit more of what this, this high calling means for us. So a very quick overview of Romans. We're gonna, we're gonna get right to chapter 11. The first 11 chapters shows Paul redefining who the people of God are. The righteous and merciful God is creating one unified people with Jews and Gentiles. That is central to the, the beginning of the, the book of Romans and the letters he wrote to them. This is central to the whole early church in the New Testament narrative that we read. 
that the people of God are no longer restricted to just the people that were born in a certain group or a certain family, but it's opened up now to anyone who gives their allegiance to Jesus as their king. That kind of shift took a massive renewal of mind for everyone, especially Jewish Christians like Paul or Peter as we read through the New Testament. They were going through this in real time as they were writing to the early churches. A massive shift of the people of God being this much larger group that's not defined by one group, but it's defined by our allegiance to Jesus as king. He's presenting to the early churches that living in unity with everyone is a way of life that reflects the salvation that God has brought. Paul describes this way of life at the outset as a sacrifice and then describes it as a transformed life. So we're going to look at those two pieces in verse 1 and 2. So this life is a sacrifice and then a transformed life. So first, sacrifice. The theologian Scott McKnight uh, describes this fuller view of what Paul is getting at as an embodied sacrifice. And I like that language. It helps. Because sacrifice can sound like a pretty intense word. And, and like I said, these, these verses can feel daunting. It can just feel like, oh, this level of perfection I need to reach to, and I'm just never going to attain it. And we can kind of feel defeated in that. But an embodied sacrifice is a different way of looking at it. That these two verses are connected, uh, and, and what we think and believe is always connected with how we live, how we embody those beliefs. And so Paul describes that this embodied sacrifice is offered first because of the transforming power of God's mercy and grace. The word mercy is English for more than one Greek word. In Romans 12.1, the, the, the phrase, by the mercies of God, uh, is a term that both echoes, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, and it also forms an element of Paul's theology of two foundational terms, love and grace. So when we think of living sacrificially, we always have to think of living out love and grace together. Second, the sacrifice Paul has in mind is radically new. If we think and put ourselves in the place of those original hearers and readers of this uh, letter, when they heard the word sacrifice, they would have thought very differently than what we would think. And Paul is saying, instead of offering animals and grains to the gods in local shrines and temples or in the temple in Jerusalem, Christian embodied sacrifice is a way of life offered to the invisible but ever-present God. So a way of life is how we live out sacrificially. We live out sacrifice and embody it when we speak, listen to others, embrace, eat, drink, love, raise children, offer wisdom, work, garden, pay taxes, approve and disapprove of things, pray, gather together. All of these things, this whole life, you can see what I'm getting at, uh, is an embodied sacrifice. So it's not saying you better do everything in your life right, but rather it's saying naturally everything in your life is going to impact the way you see Jesus and how you live that out. We can't help but live a whole life. So we can't, it's, it's not helpful for us to fracture things and compartmentalize our spiritual life away from our work life or relationship, that it all flows into each other. That's embodied sacrifice. 
Holiness also gets shifted here. As an embodied sacrifice in worship, uh, it redefines not only sacrifice, but holiness. The word holy describes God and anything in God's presence. And such, it also describes anything devoted to divine space. I like that language. That holiness is not perfection again. It's not, it's not doing everything right. But it's being devoted and aware of divine space, God's presence. And holiness thus evokes a way of life in which God is present in Christ. And it connects to this word Christ, Christoformity, which Scott McKnight loves. He uses it all the time. Essentially what it means is this living a life that is transformed by the way of Christ. So if our embodied way of life is holy, our embodied existence is no longer conformed to the world, but is transformed because of the Spirit's presence. So that's how the embodied sacrifice moves into this transformative space. Paul emphasizes that a Christian's non-conformity to the world is transcended by their conformity to Christ. And when he speaks of the world, what he has in mind is this age, or this transitory age, this transitional age, uh, where we see an unredeemed world in alliance with the powers and principalities of the world, all in rebellion against its one true creator, God. And for the Roman Christians, this played itself out most in the way of empire. So they lived within the Roman Empire, and I'm not going to give a history lesson, but uh, empires are pretty evil, as we see in history and as we th see through this, uh, the Bible. And the Roman Empire was one that was defined by ways that would go against the way of Christ. So there was embattled competition for honor and status and self-glory of idolatries formed in the dust of suppressing knowledge of God as creator, of sexual indulgence outside the creator's norms, of rebellion against Roman authorities, and most especially of any life that is not determined or shaped by love. And so many people uh, experienced mistreatment uh, in empire. It was not a everyone's flourishing kind of way. Uh, and as we think about our present life, uh, we see that uh, ever present in our world as well, but we'll get to that. And so for them to be formed by Christ was to, to see the way of empire, the way that went against Christ, and discern uh, how they were going to con be conformed by Christ and not by the Roman Empire. So to sum up, this embodied sacrifice is a dual action of God orientation and away from the world orientation. That's how Scott McKnight puts it. Uh, to turn to God is to embody a life that is sacrificial and turns away from the way of empire. That's what Paul is calling the Romans to throughout the book of Romans. And like the Roman Christians, we too live in a cultural moment where we need to discern what it means to not conform to the patterns of this world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This verse starts with the negative that Christians and us as a community are to continuously stop being conformed to the pattern of this world. That we're called to actively engage in mental resistance to outside pressure to conform to this age. And the word for uh, non-conformity here, the root of it is schema, which is the Greek word for scheme or form. So Paul is referring here to the world's underlying value system. So he's not thinking just of minute little 
behaviors or ways to live, but he's thinking of systems, large systems uh, that have underlying values that go against the way of God. Now, the simple path here is to say, as we apply this, well, the less we are involved in a part of the world around us, the more we can fulfill what Paul is asking here. So if we don't want to be conformed by the world, if we're separated from the world as much as possible, we're protecting ourselves from the very thing Paul is warning us against here. And this thinking is extremely prevalent in evangelicalism, especially in the Western church. Uh, I know many of us have grown up in that uh, and live in it. I mean, Mennonite Brethren, which Bakerview is a part of, is Anabaptist evangelical. So this is very much the world uh, that we are in. And so if that's, if that's the plan, to not be in the world as, uh, or to be away from the world as much as possible, the plan of action that we have seen over the last number of decades is to create a Christian culture that holds godly values and gives Christians a way to not be conformed by the sins or the patterns of the world. So we get to be over here. We can keep our, our bubble, our culture pure, and we don't get, um, you know, misconstrued or confused by the patterns of the world. And so we listen to Christian bands, we watch Christian movies, we read Christian fiction, all as a way to be faithful to this command of keeping our minds from the evil patterns of the world. And those forms of art are not wrong uh, in and of themselves, but I, I want to present, and I'm speaking from my own experience here, that the em emphasis on avoiding the world or the secular world for this Christian culture has left many of us with an overly simplistic and dualistic view of the world. And so what I mean by that is it easily misleads us to think that anything labeled Christian is always good and anything else at best is something we should be skeptical of and at worst is something we just deem evil because it's not within our Christian bubble or culture. And now, this might sound like I'm taking shots at VeggieTales or the Newsboys, um, but that's not my intention here, okay? I loved those uh, growing up and, and very much was formed within this. Um, but what I can say is I have gone to Bible college and uh, grown up with my peers and friends within the church and within Christianity. Uh, where this becomes a real problem is when it becomes what Christianity is defined by. Like, like the mission of the church is to have this kind of culture that we protect and defend against the world and all of the bad things out there. And if we just preserve our way, then we're good. We're doing what Paul is saying. But I just don't think that's the calling of the church that we hear in the New Testament. This too easily gets detached from the greater story and mission that God has for the world. Not conforming to the patterns of the world is not just about having the right answers or correct thinking, uh, but it's so much more than that. Uh, the mission that we have to live an embodied sacrificial life within the world. And everyone, Christian or otherwise, is being formed by the value systems of our world. Uh, that can be a scary claim. Maybe you disagree with that. Um, but when we're in the world, it is everywhere around us, these value systems. And it is our job as followers of Jesus to become more and more aware of these and discern how we make our way through this and what stories and narratives 
line up and align with the story of God and which ones don't? Which systems in our world are more like the way of empire and not the way of the kingdom of God? And so I could ask what worldly patterns we see uh, that, that we need to avoid, and we might all have very different answers. And so you can, you can get into those discussions if you would like uh, later. But all I'm trying to say here is that if the solution to stopping conformity or the, the application of these verses is primarily for us to say, don't smoke or don't dance, don't listen to secular music, don't watch Harry Potter, I know that was a big one, maybe it still is, then I think we've missed the forest for the trees. That when that is the, the message people continually hear within the church and without the church, they can't help but define Christians by that. Those are the people that have all of the rules, and if you miss one rule, you're not a part of the community. And this fixation by Christians and ourselves, I'm being honest, I have been fixated on these as well, on these do's and don'ts has led to this creation of a Christian subculture that lacks an emphasis on our call to live for the sake of the other. So this actually gets in the way of us being the hands and feet of Jesus, living out the mission to love and care for those in need in the world. And it also causes us to ignore the log in our own eye that we can become defensive and uncritical of ourselves as Christians or the church, uh, but we can see all the brokenness out in the world. If, if those people just figured their stuff out and lived more like me, the world would be a better place. And, and that is a, an overly simplistic view of, of the Christian message and an unhelpful view, I believe. What we believe and how we act are absolutely crucial to our life of following Jesus, but they always always must be attached to the greater story of God. That's why story is so important. I don't know if you've ever been in that moment where someone has told you a rule or a way to live that you can't do this. I know one for me was take your hat off when you're praying. Uh, someone called me out in the middle of a time I was praying at a youth group. Take your hat off. And I just like, in my moment, I'm like, that's what God, like he can't hear this because he's so distracted by this Billabong logo in the way between it, like, it didn't make sense to me as a kid, and I didn't know what to do with that in that moment, but it didn't feel good to know there's some rule here that I'm not following, and it's making me fail as someone who's trying to pray and connect with God. The reason that confused me is because I just didn't see how that rule that this person brought to me was attached to the greater story of God, like, where is it in scripture, why does it matter, and they didn't care to explain to me. Um, and so that's a small example, uh, but in that moment, the first thing that I thought was why. And uh, we, the kids are, are in their BB kids time now, but this is what kids love to ask all the time. Why? 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 I'm not a parent, but I'm sure parents here. That is, is one of the main words you hear constantly. Kids just interrogate your worldview at all times. Why are we doing this? Why does that matter? And I think we lose that because we have this, this view of, of growing up that you arrive at the answers and then you just solidify the answers. You, you don't need to ask why because you know now. But we ask why to always remind ourselves of the greater story of God and why what we're doing and how it attaches. Why does this live out the greater story of God? If it's something we're going to die 
on a hill on as Christians, but we can't explain why it attaches to the greater story of God, then we're missing the point of discipleship. And so this brings us to this idea of continuously being transformed through the renewal of our mind. That as the church, we are going to continuously change from one stage of understanding to a higher one through the renewal of our mind. And when Paul is talking about renewal, he means to make new uh, from the eschatological perspective of what God is doing in the world through Christ. So when we ask why, and we, we do that in community, and we ask questions, it actually helps us form and, and into the people of God and get clarity on what it means to live out the mission of God. And so this is crucial to our story. As we have our own narrative, as I shared at the start, that we, if we're honest, don't always know as much as we would like to know. As we become more aware of that story, and as we place that story in the greater story of God, transformation happens. But this can also make us uncomfortable and resistant to change. There's a tension in transformation. When we take our story and place it into the story of God, the Spirit will make us more aware of the broken parts of our story and the parts we often bury deep into the back of our minds. The stories of pain and failure, the stories of trauma and suffering, the stories of hurt, the narratives other people have told us, you're not good enough, you're never going to succeed, you're not trying hard enough. Those are the stories we often try to suppress and move on from. And those are often the stories that are in the 90% of what are dictating our life without us even realizing it. So this means trust is a crucial piece of our story of transformation. Do we trust that God loves us in the midst of our most broken stories? Do we trust others to love and accept us in community when we open up and become vulnerable about the parts of us that we aren't proud of? My hope is that this community here is a space that cultivates that kind of trust, but that just doesn't happen without us being intentional. Too many people have not experienced the church as a safe place to talk about their pain. I think, Carrie, you said at the start, if you can't be a mess in church, where can you be a mess? I hope that's true. Like, let's make that be true uh, about this community. And that means we can have a space where we can talk about the narratives that we believe about ourselves and the world, and we can graciously hear the story of God together, knowing that there's narratives that we might need to leave behind. There's beliefs about ourselves and the world that come from a different narrative than the one God has given us. A few that are very prevalent uh, in our world, and I know ones that I have unhealthily attached myself to at times. That we are what we do. That success is the measurement of our value. That's a worldly narrative that isn't in the story of God. Or maybe it's that you are alone and no one else is going through what you've gone through. That's a worldly narrative that doesn't belong in the story of God. Or maybe it's that this life is just about consuming and having whatever makes me happy, and Christianity is essentially the same 
that's not a story that belongs in the story of God. We believe that we live for the sake of the other so all can flourish. So we gather as followers of Jesus to continually remind ourselves of the story of God that we are living into. And we become aware in community of the unhealthy narratives that we might be holding onto that do not align with the way Jesus calls us to live. That's what Paul is saying here to the Roman Christians, to renew their minds together, to hear the story of God and allow that to transform your own story. So, the story of God is the one we're living into. I want us uh, to close uh, in a bit of reflection. And so I have some questions uh, that are going to come onto the screen. And, and I, I want us to, to go into groups and, and just have a bit of processing and time together to, to ask, do we know the story of God? Do, are we inspired and illuminated by what God is doing in the world? Or do we have a lot of questions about that? What excites you about that? What scares you about that? Um, so we're going to spend some time uh, in maybe groups of three or four. And